Welcome to Take Up and Read, a bite-sized Bible study podcast on the Sunday Catholic Mass readings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Welcome to our first non-Sunday bonus edition of Sorts. I would eventually like to write a podcast for all of the Holy Days of Obligation throughout the liturgical year, including the Masses of Christmas coming in a few weeks. Given that I write these in my spare time, however, I will continue to prioritize the Sunday readings, with the hope of fitting in as many of these as I can. December 8th is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. On that date, in 1854, Pope St. Pius IX issued the Apostolic Constitution Ineffabilis Deus, in which he infallibly affirmed the Church's ancient and universal teaching. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. For more on the theology of the Immaculate Conception, start with paragraph 490 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Our first reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 9-15 through 15 and verse 20. Adam and Eve sow fig leaves in an attempt to cover their shame, but it is God who will clothe them with animal skins, perhaps foreshadowing Christ shedding his own blood on the cross to forgive our sins. Next, God is described as walking through the garden where he will meet Adam and Eve. The expression for walking is the same used elsewhere in the Old Testament to denote God's presence in Israel's tabernacle. Our first parent's life in the garden is one of intimate proximity to God, and it is his presence they will lose when they are banished. This is, in narrative form, the drama of every human sin and its worst consequence. The reading continues with the punishment of the serpent which comes before the punishment of Adam and Eve. The serpent is told that he will eat dust, a scriptural idiom for defeat, and that this defeat will come from the seed or offspring of Eve. The Catholic and Christian tradition has long understood this as a prophecy of the Messiah, the first promise of a future redemption. For that reason, this last verse, Genesis 3.15, is known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the First Gospel. The offspring of the woman will indeed crush the head of the serpent when the new Eve, the Virgin Mary, gives birth to the new Adam, Jesus Christ. The last verse we read explains the origin of Adam's calling his wife Eve, which in Hebrew derives from the word for living. In giving birth to Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who will bring eternal life to all people, Mary too, in a sense, becomes mother of all the living when she gives birth to Jesus, the bringer of new life to all people. This touches on the meaning of the traditional title for Mary of Co-Redemptrix, which was defined by the late theologian Father William Most as a title of the Blessed Virgin as cooperator with Christ in the work of human redemption. It may be considered an aspect of Mary's mediation in not only consenting to become the mother of God, but in freely consenting in his labors, sufferings, and death for the salvation of the human race. As co-redemptrix, she is in no sense equal to Christ in his redemptive activity, since she herself required redemption and in fact was redeemed by her son. 
He alone merited man's salvation. Mary effectively interceded to obtain a subjective application of Christ's merits to those whom the Savior had objectively redeemed. Unquote. There's a lot going on in this very important passage from Genesis that we do not have time for here, so I recommend reading more, starting with paragraph 397 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Those of you familiar with St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body know that he opens his reflections with an extended consideration of our first parents and the fall. Our psalm for this solemnity is the beginning of Psalm 98, which is chosen for its similarities to Mary's Magnificat song of praise to God in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. In verse 3, the psalmist proclaims that the Lord has remembered his kindness and his faithfulness towards the house of Israel. This verse, and in particular the Hebrew word hesed, is a reference to the covenant faithfulness of God to his people in the Old Testament. No matter how far Israel goes astray, the Lord remains faithful, delivering them in due time. Mary is an example of one who, with God's grace, has perfectly kept the covenant, and therefore is able to perform the greatest work in its fulfillment, to bring birth to the Son of God. This solemnity's second reading is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-6 through 6 and 11-12, through 12, the densely theological beginning to St. Paul's letter. The term without blemish is a cultic one from the Old Testament for a sacrifice worthy of being offered to the Lord. The righteous, moreover, are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the indelible mark placed on the soul in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, and a pledge on the future glory promised in Christ. In the fullness of time, Christ has come to unite in himself all things which were scattered after the fall of Adam. In him, the new Adam, we become adopted as sons and daughters of God. In Mary, we encounter the new Eve, who by her obedience reverses the tragic disobedience of the first Eve in our first reading. She, in particular, is chosen and destined with a purpose, by the will of God for our salvation in Jesus. She is uniquely holy and without blemish, and quite literally, the one who first hoped in Christ. The Catechism section on grace and justification, starting at paragraph 1987, may be helpful to understanding Paul's theology here. Our gospel for this solemnity is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, the account of the Annunciation of the Archangel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. It is important to clarify that the Immaculate Conception is the feast of Mary's being conceived without original sin, not Jesus' conception in her womb. This reading is chosen because of what it says about Mary directly, and about Mary as reflected in what it says about Jesus. Our first question should be how could Luke have known the intimate details of these events? In Luke chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, he states that his gospel is an orderly account according to eyewitness testimony. When he mentions specific individuals by name and their encounters with Jesus, we may presume he does so to cite his source. We know that Luke accompanied St. Paul on some of his missionary journeys, as Paul mentions Luke's presence in his letters. Much of Luke's Book of Acts is his first-hand account of the early ministry of the church. Since it is commonly accepted that the Apostle John took the Blessed Virgin Mary with him to Ephesus when he began his ministry there, it is possible that Luke met her there during Paul's journey to Ephesus. If he did not receive her testimony in person, however, he could have easily obtained her account from one of the other apostles 
who knew her in Jerusalem. A word about Gabriel, whose name means God is my warrior, or God is strong. He is one of three archangels to appear by name in the Old Testament, along with Michael and Raphael. We celebrate their feast day together on September 29th. Gabriel appears in the book of the prophet Daniel, interpreting one of Daniel's messianic visions. Gabriel also appears to Zechariah earlier in this first chapter of Luke, announcing the birth of his son, John the Baptist, who will prepare the world for the birth of Christ. Our reading for this Mass is Gabriel's third appearance in the Bible, completing a trilogy of divine messages, all having to do with the promised Messiah. Next, I want to explode the myth we sometimes hear of Mary being an unwed mother. This is simply not the case. As betrothed, Mary and Joseph were legally married, but not yet living together. According to the custom of the time, there was a period after becoming husband and wife in which the woman remained in her father's house until her husband had prepared a suitable household for their marriage. Due to this temporary arrangement, they would obviously not be having marital relations. This is an important detail for Luke's establishing Mary's virginity, as it is during this period that she is approached by Gabriel. The next key detail in the reading is in verse 27, where we learn that Joseph, who, despite Jesus' miraculous origins, would be Jesus' legal father under Jewish law, was a descendant of King David. This Davidic patrimony fulfills the numerous Old Testament promises of a restored everlasting kingdom under the dynasty of David, including all twelve tribes under the house of Jacob. See verse 33. This kingdom is the church, with Christ at its head. Gabriel will allude to these things in his words to Mary. If Jesus is a Davidic king, that makes Mary his queen mother, or Gebirah in Hebrew. As many of the Old Testament kings had multiple wives, the position of queen was held by his biological mother, and the position held great power underneath her son, the king. The conversation between Mary and Gabriel is very interesting. First of all, because while Mary is troubled at the manner of the archangel's greeting, she does not seem to be afraid. This does not seem to be common for angelic appearances recorded in scripture. In Luke's narrative of the birth of Jesus, for instance, both Zechariah and the shepherds must be told not to fear their angelic visitors. See Luke chapter 1 verse 13 and chapter 2 verse 10. Was someone as holy as Our Lady on regular speaking terms with angels? It would not be surprising. Mary is greeted by the title, Full of Grace, and not by her name. The Greek word, translated full of grace, kakeratomene, means that Mary has been and is currently filled with grace. This is the essence of the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was full of grace and hence free of original sin from the moment of her conception. The Greek translated here as, how can this be, would be more literally rendered, how will this be? Mary's question to Gabriel can be perplexing, as it ought to be obvious to a married woman how she would conceive a child, that is, naturally through her husband. It makes more sense, however, in light of Jewish precedent for vows of chastity, even among married women, as described in the book of Leviticus, see specifically chapter 30. The vows described therein are understood by many ancient and modern sources as having been in regards to abstinence from sexual relations, as evidenced by the husband or father's legal veto power. 
Such regulation hardly seems necessary for a vow of less consequential nature, such as abstaining from meat, for instance. If Mary took such a vow, Joseph would have had to concur in the matter as her husband under Levitical law. It seems that the most reasonable interpretation of Luke's including this, this portion of Mary's conversation with Gabriel is to highlight the miraculous nature of Christ's conception by disclosing that Mary and Joseph had agreed to a virginal marriage. Even the mechanism described by Gabriel for the conception of Jesus is of paramount significance. In stating in verse 35 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Gabriel connects Mary with the Old Testament tabernacle. See, for instance, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, which says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As the tabernacle of Moses' tent of meeting, and later housed in the Jerusalem temple, was in some sense the special dwelling place of God with his people, so Mary's womb becomes quite literally the dwelling of God, come to his people in the incarnation of his son. Just as the Ark of the Covenant in the temple contained the law on the stone slabs of the Ten Commandments, the priestly staff of Aaron the high priest, and a sample of the miraculous manna, so Mary, as the new Ark, conceives in her womb Jesus, the definitive high priest, who gives the new law of grace and feeds his church with his body and blood in the Eucharist. As Gabriel departs, Our Lady exhibits her unique role in salvation history. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Mary puts her own will in the service of God's will, and so bears Jesus, whose name means God saves. As with God, it is not impossible that Mary's elderly cousin Elizabeth should have a child. So Mary's faith literally becomes fruitful in the virginal conception of the Messiah. Before I close, I want to recommend Dr. Brant Petrie's recent book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, Unveiling the Mother of the Messiah. At 240 pages, it is a short but jam-packed read, touching in more detail some of the themes discussed in this episode. If you read it for yourself, you will discover we have only scratched the surface here. That's all we have time for today. Let's conclude with a collect from this Solemnities Mass. O oh God, who by the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin prepared a worthy dwelling for your Son, grant we pray that, as you preserved her from every stain by virtue of the death of your Son, which you foresaw, so through her intercession we too may be cleansed and admitted to your presence. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more and find resources, visit studycatholic.com. And please tell your friends about the show and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks again and God bless.